I want you to see what gets even heaven rejoicing. What makes an impact in this place, in this earth, but also impacts the presence of heaven. Thanks for tuning in to the Putnam City Baptist Church podcast. We hope this message encourages you wherever you might be. If you'd like to learn more about PCBC, visit us online at pcbc.tv. Now, here's Pastor Bill. Powerful question, isn't it? And we started that discussion last Sunday, who's your one? We also are emphasizing one-on-one with God, your walk with the Lord, and you introducing your Lord to someone. Who is your one? If you have your Bibles today, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15 with me, and I want you to see what gets even heaven rejoicing. What makes an impact in this place, in this earth, but also impacts the presence of heaven. Luke chapter 15, verses 7 and verse 10. The parable that Jesus gives in Luke 15 is the parable of lostness. He gives several illustrations of the importance of that one soul. And then we read in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy, where? In heaven. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Drop down to verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over who? Over one sinner who repents. I want you to understand the reality of the opportunity that we have as God's children in the earth. That God has blessed us not just with the gift of salvation, But he has also blessed us with the gift of our ministry of reconciliation. That God has called each and every one of us who know Jesus to go out into this earth and to proclaim his name to each and every one. And when that one person comes to know the Jesus that has changed your life, the Bible says it even changes the atmosphere of heaven, that there is joy in the presence of the angels, there is rejoicing in heaven over that one soul. I wonder this year how many times we can literally shake this earth and heaven itself. I wonder how many souls we might come to know the same Jesus we're worshiping this morning because of your testimony and because of your witness. Well, the title of my sermon today is Two Great Questions. Uh, The reason I want to focus on two great questions is because the earth is full of dumb questions full of dumb answers. And you can see that every time you turn on TV, you can see that everywhere you look. I remember my first philosophy class. It happened to be at a particular public university here in Oklahoma. And I remember sitting in that philosophy class and the question was asked, can God create a boulder so big he can't move it? And the philosophy professor thought he was being real cute. And I'm thinking, you know, that's just a dumb question. But then as I moved on through life, I found we continue to ask dumb questions People trying to be clever, crazy questions, and you've heard some of these, I'm sure, through your Facebook or wherever, things like, does a man-eating shark actually eat women too? That's an important question to answer, right? What about this one? This is relevant for those of us in Oklahoma. If you pamper a cow, do you get spoiled milk in the end? You know, that's an important thing to know in our culture here in Oklahoma. How do you get off a nonstop flight? Those are things that process when you're on the plane. I love this one. You know, you'll always hear people say, well, what'd that taste like? Well, it tastes like chicken, right? Well, did you ever wonder what chickens think we taste like? Is that a question you've ever wrestled with? Probably not. It's a dumb question. My favorite of all times that my parents loved to ask my little brother, not me, but my little brother is, do you want a spanking, right? 
kind of question is that? What kind of answer will you get? Well, we can focus on all kinds of dumb questions. We can get distracted with the questions of our culture. Or we can focus on two great questions. The first question, who's your one? You say, where do you get that question out of Scripture? Well, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We'll put it up on the screen. When you see Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you will see the reality. Here's Luke 15. Let me catch up and get to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We saw it last week, and you know this, that Jesus said, when you receive my Holy Spirit, he wasn't just talking about you'll have some kind of magical, mystical powers, although we have the power, the resurrection power of Jesus in us. He talked about that you would, after you receive the Holy Spirit, you would be his witnesses. Now, who was that verse given to? Was that challenge only given to the twelve? No, who received the Holy Spirit? Who does receive the Holy Spirit? That day is all that gathered in that upper room in obedience, waiting for that day of Pentecost and to receive the Holy Spirit. They all received the Spirit, and they all became witnesses in that moment. So I take a look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I draw this conclusion, and I want you to write this down. It's not on the screen, but I want you to write it down. I think it's important that we focus on this all year long. God has someone... Write that down. God has someone for everyone who knows the one that transforms our lives. God has someone for everyone. How do I know that? Acts chapter 1 verse 8. If he didn't have someone in your life that he wanted to reach with the gospel, he wouldn't have given us Acts 1 8. He would have just said, some are called to be my witnesses. Some will receive my Holy Spirit. No, he says, you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. God has someone for everyone. It's very easy to become convinced, well, I don't really have much influence in my life. There's, I don't really know, and, and, and sadly, what can be sur- on the surface, what looks to be true, is the church sometimes has so inoculated itself, so withdrawn from our community, that we may not know as many lost ones as we should. But I know this, Everyone has someone. Even Philip, as he was going around and preaching, we'll look at his story at one point in the sermon series. And he was living out and he was preaching the gospel everywhere he could, and God redirected his path to someone he had never met before. An Ethiopian eunuch. He didn't plan it. He didn't know it was coming, but God brought someone to Philip. If you don't know who your one is today, you will soon. Because I believe everyone has someone because of the one who lives in us. As we go through this uh, new year of 2021, our desire is to be one-on-one with God, but also to declare who our one is and reach that one with the gospel. And we have four weeks that we are focusing each month. At the very first, last week was the first week, we began praying and Not just that first week of the month are we praying for a lost one. We actually do that every day, as you well know. But that's a special emphasis, a concentrated emphasis. You might even pick a part of a day or a whole day to fast and to pray for that one person that you want to see come to know Jesus. Week two, we move on and we find a unique way to serve that person. Uh, whatever that might look like and whatever that might mean, there are very, very unique ways we'll be sharing through social media, through our webpage, 
from the pulpit, different ways to encourage you to think about how can I be a servant to that person. So this week is week two. Uh, pray about, Lord, show me how I could serve this person this week. We move on into week three, and in week three, we reach out to that person in some way. We write them a personal note, a phone call, a text, uh, a post on their social media, just connecting with them, keeping that bridge into that relationship, intentionality each and every week. And then on week four, we invite someone, or you might even be able to have the door open to share the gospel with that one. Now, this four-week cycle is exactly what we're teaching our high school students. I see Stan over here on the side, and Stan Stafford is equipping our students on our PC campuses in our high schools right now, and it continues to spread. I think it's even going out into Edmond schools and some others, maybe Piedmont we're working on. But they go through the same similar four-week cycle of teaching them how they can be salt and light on their campus. This is how we can be salt and light in all the earth. And so I want to encourage you to be a part of that. And when we get to week four of this month, at the end of March, we have a very unique opportunity to invite people to our Easter services. This year, Easter uh, will look different. It just does. Uh, last year, if you remember, Easter looked real different. It was an online virtual service. Well, we're now a year later, and still there's some people who don't have vaccinations. Some people are still having to shelter at home that don't feel safe in indoor environments. So we're going to move outside. Now start praying hard here, not just for your one, but also for the weather. Uh, there's some predictions the last couple of weeks of March, there's more snow coming. So I don't want you to panic and say, oh, we can't have Easter because weather's, we'll move indoors if we have to, or we're going to pray God just gives us glorious weather to be outdoors. And we will have Easter on the lawn. The worship ministry team is already preparing a very creative outdoor experience for us to be able to tell our community about our risen Savior. It will be a powerful, awesome time. So you're going to want to bring a friend, and you're also going to want to bring your chair. Don't forget, bring a chair as well, all right? Now, let me tell you what else you can do through this season. If you go to your church center app, and if you don't have it yet, get it. Get on there. It's extremely helpful. We will help you if you take a look. If you open up your app, you go up to the top of the screen, and there's a more section with a lot of different resources. When you click on that arrow, it will bring you a drop-down box, and there you will see at the very bottom, who's your one 40-day devotional guide? It will take you over to, right now, our Uver, or the YouVersion app. If you're not familiar with the YouVersion Bible app, it'll help you connect with that. This week, our media team will post just the PDF. If you don't want to use the YouVersion app, you'll be able to find that later this week. But for now, you could get it today, you could go home, and you could work with it through the YouVersion app. Later this week, you'll be able to find the PDF file. And when you get there, you'll find a plan that you can start. And every day, it'll just pop up for you. It'll have a devotional. It'll have scriptures. We'll be reading that together and let our hearts marinate in God's Word and God's passion for that one. So I want to encourage you to do that with us as a church. But that leads us to question number two. What is your excuse? What's your excuse to not reach your one? Now, you say, well, that's a harsh question. Well, that's a real question. It's a, it's a pertinent question because that question needs to be asked because if we are called, and we are, we're going to see that in Scripture in just a moment, if we are called to reach everyone with the gospel, why aren't we doing it? 
Well, it's because of a number of excuses that I see going on in the body of Christ. Last week we saw that we are called into relationship with Christ through grace and that we're called to make disciples, not us preachers, not the staff of PCBC, but all of us are called. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 20 says, therefore we, go ahead and circle the word we, we is us. Did you learn that in English? We is us. We isn't we, me, we is us. It's very easy to draw a conclusion. No, that's the staff's job. We'll talk about that in a moment. No, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you look at the context of this and the previous verses, you find that the we, according to those previous verses, are those who are new creations. Paul's been teaching them that that in Christ, the old life has passed away, and now we're made brand new. We come to that point of salvation, and God has changed us, and he's made us brand new. And we think that that's, that's awesome and that's great, but there's more to it. He says, not only does God make you new in your creation, he makes you new in your purpose. And he gives you the ministry of being an ambassador, a representative of the king, the one who declares a message for that one who rules over the kingdom. Well, we have a new ruler. His name is Jesus. And we have his word, it's in our heart, it's in our hands, and it's to be shared with all of the word. We are his ambassadors. Then why are so few people, if that's true, every believer is an ambassador, why do so many believers today think I'm the ambassador? Why do so many people think the staff are the ambassadors? And we just go to church and then go to work, or go to school, or go here or go there. Now, the Bible says all of us are ambassadors and all of us are called to go into the world. The problem is we have a tendency to excuse away the supernatural call. Here's some famous quotes that have been made about excuses. Excuses are when you're good at making these excuses, but then at that reality, it is hard to excel at anything else. That if you fall for an excuse, if you allow the enemy to bring an excuse into your life, you will never excel in that particular discipline. In this case, reaching our one. We all can make excuses. We can all talk about our concerns, our fears, our inadequacies. And we're going to talk about some of those excuses today. But then it was also noted that if you make these excuses, these excuses are the tools with which the person with no purpose in view, no purpose in view, are actually building themselves great monuments of nothing. And how sad will that be when you take your last breath and when you appear in eternity in the presence of the one who made you a new creation and you have absolutely nothing to lay at the feet of Jesus as a legacy of your new life in Christ. Who's your one? And who's your one will come out of your passion as you walk one-on-one with God. His passion will become your passion. The excuses will fade away, and we can seek first his kingdom. Here's a quote from George Washington, of all people, who said this, it's better to offer no excuse than a bad one. Well, I'm going to walk you through bad excuses that people have bought into for generations now 
on why they don't reach one person with the gospel. Well, the very first one is this. The first excuse is, well, they would never be saved anyway. Have you ever, have you ever thought that about somebody? Have you ever known somebody and they were just so vile and so anti-God and you look at their life and you say, man, there's no way that person could be saved. No way they're going to get saved. They don't want anything to do with God. And man, have you ever been there? I've struggled with that throughout my years of walking with Christ, my new life in Christ, people I have known, and then people who've known me, frankly. I remember when I went to my 10-year reunion, we won't talk about what year that was, but there was a 10-year reunion in my past, and I showed up at my high school, went to the 10-year reunion, and was standing in line, I'm sure, for some kind of neat dessert that they had laid out there, and we were kind of recognizing people in the room, and everybody had to wear their name tag because we'd changed a little over those 10 years. As I was standing there with some folks, we started to congregate with people we remembered and a little closer to in school than others, and I remember somebody asked me, Bill, uh, what are you doing these days? And during those days, I had just become the youth pastor at Putnam City Baptist Church at our old location. I said, well, I'm a youth pastor. And they literally choked. I thought I was going to have to call in a paramedic. And they said, what? What? I'm a youth pastor. Are you kidding me? What parent would trust a kid with you, Hulse? They found it hard to believe that God got a hold of my life. I'm sure Stephen, the first martyr in the New Testament that we read about, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Acts chapter 7. We've studied this passage before, but it's a great, great example of never giving up on a single soul. I don't care how lost they look. I don't care how hardened they are in their heart. I don't care how far away from God they are. When you look at Acts chapter 7 and you read on through the New Testament, you can't help but draw the conclusion that each one, each one is valuable to God. And each one, no matter how hard they are in their heart, can be reached with the gospel. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, we drop down. Stephen's been preaching his guts out. And oh, by the way, Stephen was a teenager. He wasn't a seasoned, strong man. He was a very, very, very young man. He just happened to be on fire for God. And here he was preaching to the professional religious people of his community. He wasn't preaching in a bar. He wasn't preaching in the streets. He was preaching to the religious people of his day. They had heard the word, but they didn't know the word. And here's this young Stephen whose one was everyone who would listen. And he's preaching his heart out, and he gets to verse 51. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, now I would recommend that you take a little different approach with your one. This is probably accurately true of the person you're talking with. This was a different culture, a different time, a different relationship that he had with this audience. So don't just go word for word, but find the principle, okay? He's preaching to them. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. He goes on and on and continues to remind them. And it says in verse 54 that when they heard this, they were infuriated and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they shouted with loud voices. They covered their ears and they rushed at him with one mind. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. 
He would lose his life this day. He would preach his guts out. And he wouldn't see anyone saved. He was trying to reach his one, anyone who would respond to the gospel. He was faithful to his calling. And as he looked up, if, if you know about stoning in those days, they would drag you out of the city and they had a stoning pit in many towns. And they would throw you in a big hole and there would be rocks all around the perimeter. Rocks that you had to pick up with two hands, hoist up and throw down into the pit to crush the bones of the victim. And here's Stephen looking up out of the hole, looking around the perimeter, not seeing the faces of evil, but seeing past that and seeing Jesus standing on the throne. And in that moment, Stephen never saw his one trust Christ. But look who was there. You've seen this with me before. It goes on, verse 58, last part. And the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Stephen's last words, Lord, forgive them. Lord, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against them. Saul was taking all that witness in. He was watching a man willing to die for his story, for his Savior. He saw the reality that he had something he didn't have. And he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the most religious dude in town. Matter of fact, he was the ringleader of this group that was trying to purge the earth of this false cult called Christianity. But he saw something in that pit that stayed with him the rest of those days. And it began to gnaw at him, and that seed that was planted in his heart would bear great fruit. And you remember as he was going down the road later, as there was another time on the road to Damascus, he was going after more Christians. And the Holy Spirit, God revealed himself, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul thought he was living for God. He didn't know God. But on that Damascus road, and I believe it was the fruit of a root that was planted through the testimony of Stephen, who wanted to reach one, just one soul with the gospel. Anyone and everyone. He never saw it with his own eyes. But he was still used by the Holy Spirit with the one person on the planet that everybody would have told you there's no way Saul will ever be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we read his writings today, this Saul of Tarsus is the Apostle Paul who was reached, who was a one who came to know Jesus because he saw it in Stephen. Don't tell me there's somebody in your life harder than the Apostle Paul who was Saul. Don't tell me there's somebody out there who is so hard and so lost they cannot be saved. Scripture gives us story after story that you never give up on anyone and you take the gospel to them. Saul's now saved and we wake up in Acts chapter 26, if you want to flip over there, Acts chapter 26 to the story of Paul at the end of his ministry. He's been saved. He has spent the rest of his life being a witness. He's received the Holy Spirit. He is sharing his witness everywhere he goes. And now he's before King Agrippa. This is King Agrippa II. King Agrippa II is very, very unique in his person. We find him uh, now presiding over Paul's court session 
Paul has appealed to him as a Roman citizen. Festus has brought Agrippa in. As we look in on Agrippa, there are some things you need to understand. He was known as a very, again, out of the lineage of Herod who tried to kill Jesus and the babies in Jesus' day. All the other Herods who had followed who were evil. He is the last to ever reign from Herod's line. He also is known as a very perverted man who had a relationship going on with his sister who was right there with him in this court. He was also known as somebody who was very wicked but had been entrusted with the supervision of the temple in Jerusalem and also had the right to appoint the high priest. That was his responsibility as the king of Jerusalem. Paul didn't say, man, there's no way Agrippa would believe. There's no way Festus would believe. These, these corrupt government officials, these ones who claim to be of us but are not, this perverted lifestyle that is in front of me, there's no way he'll ever accept a holy God. Paul didn't live with excuses. He lived with a passion. And he went after Agrippa. And if you read through the story, you can get all the way through there. And Paul keeps drawing his attention to Agrippa and to the king. And he's preaching powerfully his story, what his life was before Christ, how he found Christ, and the message of a resurrected Savior. And Agrippa was questioned, verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He challenged him. Agrippa, Agrippa, you're the one over the temple, right? You're the one that points the high priest. I know you're familiar with who God is, but what do you believe? He challenged him. He didn't back away from him. He didn't withdraw and say there's no way he could be saved. He challenged him. Agrippa replied to Paul, and he said, in a short time, you're going to persuade me to make a Christian of myself. A little mockery there, but I think also some penetration to a hard heart. And Paul said, I would wish, watch this, we'll look at his passion, and I would wish to God that even a short or long time, not only you, Agrippa, but also all who hear me this day would become such as I am myself, except for these chains. Paul's passion was for everyone. And there was no one, not even Agrippa, who couldn't be reached with the gospel and who didn't need to hear the gospel. At one point, Paul was that one that some thought could never be saved. And now Agrippa is before that very one, now the Apostle Paul. And what we see modeled is there's not a single one out there who isn't available to be your one. Don't make an excuse. Don't fall for excuse number one. They can't be saved. Excuse number two, I don't know how. I hear a lot of people do this, man, I wish I could do what you do, Bill. I wish it was so natural for me. Guess what? It wasn't for me either at first. And yet it should be a supernatural response from our life. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't have to get your PCBCU uh, certificate. You don't have to be ordained like Braden Gammon will be tonight. You don't have to be a staff member at a church. You don't need more discipleship. Let me prove it to you. Go to John chapter 4 quickly, or we're going to run out of time. John chapter 4, and let me give you the example. You know the story. Jesus sees one person at a well. 
All the other disciples have gone into town to go get lunch. They've been on the ministry trail. They've been preaching the gospel, trying to reach everyone, but they're taking a break, not Jesus. He sees this one woman at the well, and he introduces her to living water. He goes through that whole scenario in her life, and she comes to find out who he really is and that he is what she has been looking for. And I want you to see how she responded. Verse 27. At this point now, she's been saying, his disciples come back. They were amazed that Jesus had been speaking with a woman. That was a no-no for a man to speak with a woman, and certainly a holy man, a rabbi, to speak to this unholy woman who had a reputation in the city. Now, they didn't say it out loud. They didn't say, well, what are you seeking or why are you speaking with her? But they were thinking it in their hearts. This woman can't be saved. She's too far gone. She's too lost. And you shouldn't be talking to her anyway, Jesus. No, she became his one that day. And Jesus brought her into his path. And when he saw her, he knew, this is my one. This is who God has put in my path this day. And he reached her with living water. And so, as a result, the woman, look at verse 28, this is beautiful. So the woman left her water pot and she enrolled in seminary. What a, they, they had opportunity in those days. She, she got signed up at the synagogue and, and she said, man, I'm going to spend the rest of my life learning how to be an ambassador for Christ. Is that what happened? She went into the city. And how long has she been saved? Minutes. Not days, not weeks, not months, not years. Minutes. She went into the city and she said to her people, come, see a man who told me all things I have done. Is this not the Christ? Is this not he? And they listened to her story. And many of them that day followed her to Jesus and they were coming to him. And they also were finding their living water. Don't tell me don't tell me you have to be a pro to get this done. Here's a lady who hadn't been growing up in church. She'd grown up outside the will of God. But when she was changed by God, she took her God to her people. She went to her ones. Why are we not doing that? Why are we living for the excuse, well, I just don't know how? She didn't necessarily know how, but she knew she needed to be obedient as a new creature in Christ. She wasn't trained, she was transformed. She wasn't discipled yet, but she was an ambassador. She didn't have one, this is beautiful, she didn't have just one, she had everyone on her mind. She just didn't go to that recent boyfriend, she went to everyone she could in the city. Will we have that same passion about the same Jesus who's changed us? Or will we keep living with excuses. Let me give you another excuse. We've got to get these in quickly. Excuse number three, that's the pastor and staff's job. Well, I debunked that earlier with Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I can debunk it with Ephesians 4, 12 that says, we as the called out ministry staff, like Braden, we will ordain tonight. He's being ordained into the gospel ministry. That ministry, Ephesians 4, 18 says, is he is called not to go reach the ones, your friends, your neighbors. He is called to equip you to carry out your ministry of reconciliation. That's the unique call of my life as a pastor. 
I also carry the ministry of reconciliation as an ambassador of Christ, but as a pastor to the body of Christ, I am to equip you to carry out your ministry of reconciliation. Excuse number four. Cousin to number three. I'm not qualified. I don't, I don't have the certifications under my belt. I don't have the training. Well, it's interesting. The first ones Jesus ever called. He's walking around. He's been observing. The Father has revealed him the twelve, and the first ones he called out, you can read about it in Matthew chapter 4 if you want to write it in your notes, verses 18 through 20. He calls out to Peter, James, and John. Calls them out of fishing boats. And he says, I will make you fishers of men. Let me tell you why that's so powerful. If you know much about the culture of that day, if you knew about uh, the life of Jewish young men, at the age of five, they would enter into rabbinical school, if you will. They would study the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They would memorize all five books. At the age of ten, they were then given their exam. The rabbis would examine the children of that generation. At age 10, they would select out the brightest and they would continue on with the rabbis in their studies, getting prepared to become priests and leaders in their community. And that day, the rabbi was the most intelligent person of the community, the most educated. And if you didn't pass the bar, the spiritual bar at age 10, you were sent home to daddy's business. Well, you look at these 12 that the Father gave to Jesus. He didn't pull them out of the seminaries. He didn't pull them away from other rabbis who had been studying. No, these men now who had apparently flunked out at age 10, gone back to their daddy's fishing business, were now being called to follow the rabbi. It's recorded later on in Acts. It makes a little bit more sense when Peter was sharing the gospel it says, they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they were amazed. These guys were on Jesus' team and they flunked out of school at age 10. You see, you don't have to be the most educated. You don't have to be a scholar with the gospel. You need to be saved with the gospel. And therefore, you become God's ambassador. There's one last one last excuse, and I'll have to tell the next uh, worship service, you were too slow in listening, but here we go. <laughs> it's too difficult. It's just too hard today. People don't want to hear it. People don't want it. People, we can excuse ourselves all the way into the ordinary and excuse souls to hell. Too difficult, huh? Sean Keels wrote a whole book about this called Hold the Rope. Four Friends had a paralytic who would have never, ever gotten to Jesus, ever. Couldn't get there, couldn't walk, couldn't get up, couldn't get there. But four friends knew who their one was. Four friends didn't fall for the excuse, oh, it's too hard. We'd have to carry them all the way across town. That'd be too hard. We'll wait till Jesus gets closer, then we'll get engaged. Then they get them all the way across town. They get them to a packed house. They're too late. They can't even get them in. It would have been very easy for them to say, man, we missed God on this. It isn't our time. And take them all the way back. No. 
You remember their rooftop ministry. They took them all the way up, and they got them to Jesus. Whatever it took, they got creative, and they didn't take no for an answer. They didn't let a crowd block them out. They didn't let what was happening in their community stop them. They didn't have a single excuse. They had a passion, and they followed through, and they got their one to Jesus. And here's the beautiful part of that story that we've talked about before. In that moment, as that roof was falling apart and particles were falling down on the crowd and people were like, what is going on? And down comes this pallet with a paralytic. One of the most powerful things I see in Scripture is what Jesus saw that day. Not, oh man, here comes another liability claim on our insurance. <sighs> Not another nuisance. Man, I've got plenty on my hands now. One more, are you kidding me? No. You know what Jesus saw? It says Jesus saw their faith. Those four heads looking in, lowering that guy down, waiting for Jesus to change their one. And Jesus says, I see your faith. I wonder what Jesus will see in our faith in 2021. Let's pray about it. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Have you been praying for one? You may be here and somebody's praying for you. You may be one on somebody's list because you don't know Jesus. You may be viewing in and, 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 and somebody invited you to listen to this message or somebody asked you to tune in this very day and that's God drawing you. If you don't know Jesus, you're the one we're praying for. If you know Jesus, do you have someone you're praying for right now? If you don't, say, Lord, show me one. And if he doesn't show you one today, say, Lord, I want to have your eyes this week. And Lord, just like I see, uh, like Jesus saw a woman at a well, show me me that one in my life that you're going to place. Lord, I just need to know who is that one. And when God shows you, I want you to start praying for that person every day until they come to know Jesus. Thank you for spending time with our church family. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, visit us online at pcbc.tv. There you can also contact us and find out how to connect with us through social media channels. And visit pcbc.tv podcast to listen to additional messages from Putnam City Baptist Church.